Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and I'm standing in for Pam, who's, uh, I think she's gone surfing down the West Coast today. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. Yes. Um, This morning in the studio joining me are three people who know absolutely nothing about horticulture, but I thought, you know, what the hell, let's invite them in anyway. So I'd like to... um, Put out a very big welcome to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Virginia Hayward from Virginia Land, and Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, AB. Good morning. Good morning, everybody out there in listening land. It's a bit chilly this morning, isn't it? Yeah. It was white abs- fingertips. Yeah, it, it was definitely a um, a four layer morning this morning. So um, yeah, so if you um, are thinking of getting out of bed, um, just don't yeah, don't, yeah, don't, don't for starters. Or um, yes, I didn't want to get out on. of bed, and my thick socks were absolutely necessary. Mm. Ah yes, and um, I, it was a bit like an obstacle course for me this morning driving to work. There were ruse from here to Kingdom Come. Uh. Uh, there was fog through all of the dips. Mm. Uh, there was the odd fox and. And, and the owl, the owl oh. that came shooting out of the darkness almost into the windscreen. So, oh. yeah, it was um, was an obstacle course. Now, Stephen, um, once again, you have been travelling. and Yes, um, I just got back last night. Yes, thank you so much for making it in. I'm surprised, actually. Well, I was expecting to be seriously jet-lagged, I have to say, having flown from Rome to Bangkok and then a couple of hours in Bangkok and then to Melbourne. And I got home at 8.30 last night. Well, no, actually, I landed in Melbourne at 8.30 last night, got home about. 9.30 after I got cleared customs and picked up my duty free and all that stuff and went to bed straight away or practically straight away thinking oh I'll get a good night's sleep and I might be all right and I woke every hour or so and at five o'clock I was so awake I thought this is ridiculous so I actually got up at five o'clock this morning and made myself a cup of tea which I don't normally do and then tootled down and have just spent uh, the last half hour doing the age crossword Um, (laughs) so I think I'll suffer for it tonight though yes probably so (laughs) So do you usually suffer from jet lag? Uh, Generally on the way over I do. Yeah. (laughs) On the way home, not always. Mm -hmm. Um, But normally it's in the second day I start to feel a bit weird um, as my body tries to readjust back to the time zones. and, And I have to say the cold. Because uh, it was, I wouldn't say it was exceedingly hot in Italy, which is where I was. Um, but we had nice warm days. We mm-hmm. had a few slightly showery wet ones, and we had one seriously wet one. Um, and everything was green and gorgeous. So the summer hadn't really set in in Tuscany and Umbria. Um, but um, it was actually almost everyday perfect walking weather. Lovely, I have to say, it was just beautiful. And for anybody who really wants to know, what we were doing is, or at least I did half of, uh, the Way of St Francis of Assisi, uh, which is a pilgrim walking track that starts for, if you're going to do the whole thing, it starts in Florence, goes through Assisi and ends up in Rome. Uh, And it's a bit over 500 kilometres of walking. Uh, I just did the Florence to Assisi leg, which is sort of half of it, thereabouts. Uh, I think it takes about 31 days to do the whole lot. Uh, I spent four or five days in Florence before we started the walk because I'd never been to Florence before. So I had to do the Uffizi and the Doma and the Ponte Vecchio and Was all those ab- things. absolutely crowded with tourists? Oh, God, yes. You know, to, just to get into the Uffizi Gallery, you, unless you paid extra money to steps around the queues, uh, it took at least an hour and a half to get into the Uffizi, just standing in a queue. I've got a very good friend from the 70s who's lived there since 19... Well, I don't know. She moved to Italy in the 80s when I moved to London. And 
when I go and visit her, we just head straight for the country because it's a bit like going to visit somebody who's living in the middle of a museum. Oh, yeah, it's madness. Everywhere you look, there are crowds. Uh, there are people wandering along with umbrellas or sticks with flags on the top, leading groups of tourists from all over the world, all over the place. And, but if you go up... And you complain about tourists and you're a tourist. You, know? <laughs> you could join any group you wanted, really. Well, you could you? almost, except a lot of them were speaking Japanese or Chinese or Dutch or German or you name it, they were all but there. if you go up those hills around Florence, there are some absolutely spectacular yeah. gardens up those hills. And in fact, it was interesting because on the last day we were there, I think on the Sunday before we started on the walk, uh, in Tuscany they have an open garden day um, where lots of gardens are just thrown open. There's no charge or anything. They just have a sign up and you just go in and look. And we had no idea of how to find them or what to look for exactly, but we just happened across a couple of them in the city. Mm. Um, that had their signs up. And one was a, a little monastery garden, uh, which was quite cute. One was actually just a courtyard that had beautiful frescoes around the courtyard. I think it had a gardenia in a pot sitting right in the middle. That was the only green life in this whole thing. But, you know, it was a private space that had been thrown open to the public to have a wander around. The term <laughs> garden used very loosely. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really more public or more private spaces that were being thrown open. I think the better gardens were well out of town because obviously in Florence you've not got a lot of space to have grand gardens. Mm. Um, we went to a couple of the open properties there, the bigger There's, gardens. Absolutely beautiful ones up those hills. Yeah, oh, mm. but, it, it, you know, it, Florence was fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a beautiful city and it's nice and compact and you can get around and see everything on foot. Um, but I was glad to get out because uh, the crowds were just frightening. Uh, I don't know where they put all those people at night. I don't know where they all go. We got a, a little apartment that we got online that was right in the middle. It was about two minutes from the Domo and two minutes from the Uffizi in the other direction, um, which was very convenient, uh, except it had a bar underneath it, <laughs> which we didn't know about. <laughs> and, you know, there was lots of noise till about one o'clock in the morning every day. And Did you get blisters? I got a blister on the back of my left heel uh, walking in my blunnies, uh, uh, which sort of worked its way through. Uh, Craig, Craig, had, Craig had his wonderful walking boots on and managed to have deep blisters all over his feet by the first couple of days, and I was just wearing my blundstones. Um, but, yeah, I didn't have a lot of problems with it. And, and I'm going to sound awfully smug here, but I didn't do any practice in walking at all before we went. Uh, my partner, Craig, goes for walks up onto Mount Macedon every week and spends four or five hours walking with the dogs once a week, and, and he's very fit and all that sort of stuff, and he, he finds it you know, exciting. And it was his trip. I went along on his trip, really, because uh, I'm although I'm prepared to walk, it's not my favourite thing in lots of ways. And I think our biggest day was nearly 30 k's. That is a long walk. That, that's yeah. a long walk. And uh, in the first few days going up through the hills outside Florence, some of them were sort of almost vertical in both directions. So you had to go scoot up the side of a mountainside and then scoot down the other side. And there were narrow little sort of walking tracks with sl slippery loose gravel. And it was challenging, I have to say. It was very challenging. And the first day I thought, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm never doing this again. Um, but Tell us that again. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I got used to it after the first day or so, and it was still a grind towards the end. There were still days where it was really hard work, uh, and you were certainly pleased to get into the town you were going into, only then to find the hotel you were looking for was still another mile on the other side of town, uh, as often as not, or up a big steep hill. If, if somebody couldn't do it were there people to pick you up 
Not really, but I figure most of the towns we were in, I didn't have to try this out, but most of the towns we were in were big enough probably where you could find a taxi if you needed one, um, or you, and our luggage was being moved from place to place. So, so the people that moved the luggage, if you've broken your leg, exactly. they could have come and got you. In fact, they? it was interesting. There was one place where we were staying, and the next day was a about a 26, 27K walk, um, and we met some... Um, uh, some lovely German walkers uh, on the trek, three ladies with an Italian friend, and and uh, they actually hitched a ride with our luggage for half of the day's walk. They found out who was moving our luggage and they actually jumped in the car with Craig and my bags and got taken halfway in because the German ladies were really struggling. They were yeah. really having a hard time. Did uh, anyone have a Fitbit on? Uh, yes, there was another German couple we met, uh, and she had one, and uh, she told us how many thousands of steps we took that day. And I'd love to know how many. Please tell us what a Fitbit is. You wear it on your wrist, and it yes. yeah counts your steps, and, and it you counts can, your heart steps. rate, and yeah, it heart, lets you know if you're going to yeah. have a heart yeah, attack. Yeah, I was going to get one of those for my birthday, and I said I didn't want one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we and it was rather fun because it's a pilgrim's walk. Some people do take it seriously as a pilgrimage, so you know it's a religious sort of experience. Uh, for me, that's not why I went. It was to look at the wildflowers and to enjoy the scenery, and of course for Craig, it was the energy of the walk and all that sort of stuff which was pushing him along um but you bump into uh, and it's not a well-known walk so you don't have thousands of people on it like you would if you did the one in france the the way of st james uh the camino uh where you could be walking with hundreds and hundreds of other people the camino uh, sounds awful there's so well, many Craig people said on the it. french part of it's beautiful he did that years ago but he backed out when he got to the border with spain and decided not to go any further uh, but this one's quiet but you do bump into the same people so uh, um, and if you have a rest day, well, then it throws you out of sync with those people, and then you start meeting up with another group of people, and you rarely ever walk with anybody else. Um, uh, we're out on our own most of the time. You might overtake somebody who is walking slower, or somebody might overtake you. Um, so it wasn't a tour as such, rather than just a walk. Yeah, it, yeah. it was. It, it was great. I mean, every town we stopped in. I mean, some of those beautiful old uh, walled. Um, towns of medieval origin uh, all over Italy that we never hear about but are just absolutely gorgeous when you walk into them and you think this is just fabulous. In fact, I enjoyed some of the smaller places we walked through Mm. more probably than Florence. I I mean, uh, places like Gubbio and San Sepulcro were both beautiful medieval cities. Montepulciano. Well, we didn't go there. (laughs) Uh, I'm just talking about the ones that were on the route that we walked. Uh, And they were really, really fabulous places. And, um, And I mean, I think I've seen enough frescoes to last me a lifetime now. You know, because everywhere you go, there's these beautiful old churches and they're full of paintings and frescoes and stuff. But I have to say, I probably couldn't tell you in which church I saw what now. We saw so many things. And what about the wildflowers? Anything there that really caught your eye Um, that you hadn't seen before? Well, it wasn't so much about things I hadn't seen before. And it was quite different to the French walk that Craig and I did last year right up in the mountains where we saw sort of alpine meadows and things. I mean, you didn't go up to those sort of heights where we were in in Italy. Uh, And so there certainly wasn't sort of fields of wildflowers other than sort of cornfields full of poppies. Poppies. And <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of poppies. Um, but along the roadsides and verges and things, we I suppose the highlight for me actually was the diversity of um, ground orchids we mm-hmm. saw. Uh, I, don't, I didn't keep a count, and I'll have a check when Craig gets back with the camera on what things we, we managed to get. But 
I would guess that we probably saw about 20 or 25 species uh, of ground orchids, from tiny little green things that most people would have walked past that I picked up on just because I knew what I was looking for, to some fairly spectacular species. And I've got to do some work on checking what I actually saw, because uh, I didn't have a, uh, a, flora, a flora with me to sort of check out the species. Uh, but we saw some amazing species of orchids. And I suppose for me, the one highlight plant of the trip, and I only saw one stem of it in the whole time we were there, is a rather obscure plant called Paris quadrifolia, uh, which is uh, herb Paris, which is a wildflower that grows in uh, all through Europe. And it's Related to the trilliums, it has a funny little sort of stem that comes up with five little leaflets at the top of the stem and then this little yellow sort of stamen-like flower that sits up in the middle of it. It's very delicate, very small, uh, and I saw one stem of it in flower in a beech forest uh, when we were actually, we'd stopped to take a picture of another orchid and whilst Craig was down on his hands and knees taking the picture of the orchid, I was always on the lookout to see if there was anything else in that same area because uh, when you're walking, you've got to watch where you put your feet. Um, so you sometimes miss things. And so while he was taking the picture of the orchid, just up on the brow above him was one stem of Paris in flower. And I looked for it the whole trip after that and didn't find another piece of it anywhere. But you would have seen Herb Robert. Oh, oodles <laughs> of that. Uh, and there were salvias and there, you know, I mean, there was aquilegias, there were digitalises, there were, you know, all sorts of classical sort of wildflowers um, um and they're all indigenous to those areas yeah and they're, yeah, they're, they're wow. not sort of weeds they're yeah. they're they're natural wildflowers yeah. in those areas um and you know it was yeah, it was it was lovely i mean we really did enjoy it and, and to see all of that sort of greenery so, and everything was lush so Stephen, if the orchids are growing there they don't get frosts is is, is that what happens or are oh they no they get hardy Oh, they're frost-hardy ones. They're dormant right. in the winter. They disappear below ground level. Because um, they get snow in Florence. Oh, yeah. Well, they, and in fact, as you're walking along uh, some of the roads and things, there were signs up with snowflakes on the morning, you to be careful in snow, and, and, and thunderstorms on, on signs, you know, warning you about the rain and things that can happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I guess the overriding memory of the whole trip, though, will be just the greenness of everything. Craig kept looking at his photos on the camera and saying, this is far too acidy green, this, this green I'm getting on my photos is wrong. Mm-hmm. But when you really looked at it, it wasn't. It, it was, was quite green. Yeah. It was so eye-achingly green. But that's the difference between Europe and here. Mm, I mean, when I, when I used yep. to fly home, you know, you, you just hit that red as you flew into Australia, knowing you've still got another 12 hours yeah. of flight ahead of you. Yeah. And and the light. I mean, in, you know, I used to love going to Sissinghurst with the white garden, mm. but to do those pale, pa- whole gardens of those really pale colours here, mm. it disappears yeah. in this Yes, it just bleaches out. Yeah. Um, and so when it I, was a great trip. When I came back, I couldn't understand putting so much red, purple and orange all in the garden, you know, but of course you need it because need it. That's the, right. the light yeah. is so strong. Mm. Absolutely. And well, I did, and I, by the way, I didn't mention the food and wine. <laughs> we're, we're coming back to you about yes, that. So yeah. let's, let's get – there's only a few community announcements this morning. I think we've all got one. So um, I'll start with the uh, Geelong Botanic Gardens has got a discovery walk called Seedy Matters, a capsule of life. And that's this morning or today, I should say, uh, from 2 o'clock. Uh, discover the wonderful ways in which plants ensure their survival. We explore how our ancient species have survived to modern times and the adaptations of seed to wind, water, insects and animals, including us. And that's uh, meet your volunteer guide at the front gates at the uh, Geelong Botanic Gardens. And if you need more information on that, the website is w's.friends.com. 
friendsgbg.org.au. So that's friendsgbg.org.au. Um, and I'm also putting a bit of a call out um, for um, members for the APS Yarra Yarra Group, which is for the Altham area. Um, they've recently moved where they hold their meetings uh, once a month, and they've moved to a lovely uh, building, the Araluan Centre, which is the Irana building, which is at 226 Old Altham Road in Lower Plenty. And um, as with any of the um, APS or indeed the garden groups, you know, there's a, um, a lot of talk about growing particular plants. Plants. There's guest speakers every month and uh, plant sales and information about local plants. And the, and the really good thing is that, um, you know, members bring in plants that are thriving in their own garden. So if you live in a similar area, you'll know, um, you know, plants that you're going to have some success with. Uh, so the APS Yarra Yarra, that's the first Thursday of the month. And if you need, need more information on that, the website is apsyarrayarra.org.au. Fantastic. All right, well, I've got, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I've got one here from the Rose Society of Victoria. Uh, they're wonderful uh, pruning demonstrations that they run right through the winter. And today, if you're thinking that you'd like to learn a little bit about pruning roses, uh, they have a demonstration going on at Pinewood Nursery, 478 Blackburn Road, Glen Waverley. Um, They've got one at 11 this morning and they've got one at 1.30, so you could go along to Pinewood Nurseries for that one. And just as a lead-in for next Saturday, um, they've got one at Trelaw Roses on um, the Princess Highway, 216 Princess Highway at Portland. So that's at 11am. So that's next Saturday if people are interested in going down into that general direction. Um, So that's the Rose Society demos. What about you, Graham? What's happening in your world? Uh, Yes, AB, we're we're having... uh, pruning demonstrations today at our nursery at Clonbanane. If you want to get to Clonbanane, go straight up the Hume Freeway and you'll see the Clonbanane turnoffs. And if you go up the ramp and you'll see Silky Garden signs and we're about 500 metres from the main highway. So we've got a pruning demonstration today at 1.30 and tomorrow also at 1.30. And next weekend, which will be the 18th and 19th, Saturday and Sunday, we've got pruning demonstrations in at 1.30. We won't be just talking pruning, but if people have got pruning prune, um, secretaries, they want um, sharpened. Oh, I should send mine over. <laughs> <laughs> bringing them along. And, and um, might I say that over the years with pruning demonstrations, I've seen some real shocking um, secretaries <laughs> that people have produced. But we sharpen them up and make them um, really presentable to get good cuts on their pruning. And we can also we'll be also talking about other things in the garden like um, um, growing vegetables at this time of the year, mm-hmm. and um, things like kale and silver beet and that sort of thing. And we'll also be talking about mulching the garden and water retention. It's a great time of the year to t- look at wa- natural water retention within the garden, and and we use that as part of our um, sustainable gardening uh, demonstration at, at our in our garden. At, and do people get to have a go pruning? Oh, yes, for sure. Okay, so uh, really, got, I mean, call it got, for what it is. You want people yeah. to prune your roses, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yes, they're certainly welcome to do that, and we don't mind um, uh, people, you know, having a go. Fantastic. They're welcome. Beautiful. What about you, Virginia? What's happening over there? Well, the one, well, this is I'm out of out of range, really, because what I wanted to mention was that um, Norgates are having a big sale. Um, on Monday, and you know perennials at five dollars a clump, 
herbaceous peonies $20 a big clump. So that's going to be something that's really worthwhile. And there'll also be people with stalls there. So it'll be a very good place for people to go and do a good shop. And where is that? Norgate. Well, you've got to go out to Trentham, mm-hmm. um, and he's out between Trentham and uh, and Blackwood. Uh, it'll be signposted, I should think. I'm sure it'll be signposted. Yeah, because uh, I can't remember the actual road that Norgate's nursery's on. Mm. Uh, but for but those it, who want to know why this is all happening, I mean, Dennis has decided enough is enough at about 90, uh, and he's moved into a nursing home, and the family is not really interested in continuing with the nursery. And so it's a closing down sale. It's a, basically, Aww. yes, it's a closing down sale, uh, which is very sad, considering Dennis has been in the nursery industry since just after the Second World War. Mm. He opened his original nursery site which is now Frogmore, um, about 1945. Uh, And so he's been an incredible character and part of the nursery industry for an awfully long time. And he was still growing perennials when perennials were no longer in favour and kept a lot of stuff going uh, that we wouldn't have now if it wasn't for Dennis. Mm. Um, You know, he determinedly grew plants that were not fashionable, not sort of the sort of stuff you could make a lot of money out of, um, and he kept doing them. Uh, And so he had lots of things that have become popular again. Um, He was prepared to hang around and wait. Uh, And his stock was always good and he always had big clumps you could buy from him. How he grew things in the soil that his old nursery was on, I've no idea. It was like... But it's very beautiful still, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. Well, Mm. Frogmore has actually put a lot of time and effort into revamping the soil there. But Dennis kept lifting things, washing them and sending them off so his soil got lower and lower on the site <laughs> over the sort of 50-odd years he was there. And so he was down to the sort of orangey clay. Um, <laughs> and I still remember as a kid going into his nursery when my father started a nursery back in the 1960s. Uh, and in a, on a winter's day, if you went over to Dennis's to pick up some stuff, you'd walk out in high heels. <laughs> you know, it was just... The muddiest place in the world. Uh, and look, he, he was such a quirky, interesting character. I mean, he, he had all sorts of weird and wonderful beliefs in how things uh, could be grown. He had, you know, he developed his own techniques, some of which were completely weird. Mm. Uh, and we need those people, don't yeah, we? Because that's when we come up with new ideas well, of and course new we ways do. of doing things. And, and anyhow, I like the idea that somebody like Dennis, who was, a, who was a lover of plants, was selling things that he loved to grow instead of just like a lot of people these days who are actually selling product, which I find really frightening. Uh, They're not selling plants anymore. Uh, They're not proper nursery people. They're, you know, they're they're garden centre-y people who just are selling a product. And and they keep keep filling it up with stuff you stick on fences, Mm. which I loathe, all these curly-whirly bits of tin. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 sad because I think you know there's a place for all these things, the barns, the the garden centres, and all that sort of thing. But unfortunately, the true nurseries are missing out a wee bit, mm. and uh, people aren't encouraged to go there. People don't support the the small nursery owner, uh, and that's where the knowledge and the and the mm. background is, and and the enthusiasm and passion, which I think people. People need to be aware of and they need to support and pay for. because And, and Dennis was a person of knowledge. Oh, he was. Mm. I mean, he knew so much stuff. Mm. I have to say, though, I still remember as a kid, uh, Dennis had decided at one stage he was going to grow, go into growing a few rhododendrons as well as his perennials. <clears throat> but he was having trouble with his propagating techniques. He could get the cuttings struck, but then he couldn't get them out of the greenhouse into a pot and hardened off 
all in the processes. And sometimes things worked despite him. And one day he was potting up some rhododendron cuttings that had struck and he'd run out of potting mix and he found some yellow clay at the base of a power pole that had been recently put in. So, you know, it was all stuff that had been dug out of the ground. And he used that to pot his rhododendron cuttings in. They actually survived despite him, and he thought he'd worked out how to then deal with rhododendron cuttings. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I still remember him telling me all this, and, he, you know, Dad and I were there, and he's saying, I've cracked it now, I know how to do this. All you need is that yellow clay yep. from six feet down, yep. uh, and it'll work. Uh, so he was a very quirky character, and I'm surprised he's lived as long as he has too because I have to say he was never really an organic nurseryman. <laughs> uh, you know, the next chemical that came along, Dennis would use, uh, and I still remember seeing him with a knapsack on his back that was leaking down his back, mm. spraying his boots as he was talking to us with something toxic in, the, in that knapsack. Yeah. Uh, I think when Dennis eventually goes, he won't rot and he'll glow in the dark. <laughs> um, but So he was, you know, he was a very traditional sort of nurseryman. I think he was probably still using arsenic at a lead after it had been well and truly banned and probably DDT and mm. God knows. He used to spray the ground with power kerosene Ooh. to kill weeds. Mm. Well, it would work. It did. Yeah. <laughs> but his, his whole place smelt like a, a garage. Stephen, he got the results then. Yeah, well, he did. He got the results. And are you buying any of his plants for the nursery? I don't think I'm going to have a chance to go over, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I'd recommend it to everybody. I mean, it's a good chance to grab a little bit of horticultural history in a way. And yeah. apparently there's some really good stuff because mm. Greg, who appears on this show, Greg will be there. He's at Malden Market today and he's going to Norgate's tomorrow. And there's other people who will be having stalls there. So there's both the really good big clumps that can be dug up from Dennis's as well as other people having stalls. Yep, fantastic. So if you're on that side of town, which unfortunately I'm not, yep, great. it'll be brilliant. Now, did you have another community announcement over No, there? that was mine. That, that was all? All right, well, I'm just quickly going to go to a community announcement. The recent federal budget has cut funding for community digital radio, a move that puts all community digital radio services at risk. Show your support for live and local voices by signing the petition at keepcommunityradio.org.au. Help keep the community in your radio. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Graham from Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm and Virginia Hayward from Virginia Land. Now, if uh, we're going to invite our listeners to join us, so if you've got a uh, gardening question, please give us a call on 94190155. That's 94190155, and it looks like we've already got... um, uh, No, I don't think we have got anybody in there at the moment. Um, All right, so, and Stephen, um, what's happening in your garden at the moment? I don't know. It was dark when I got home. (laughs) Um, Dark when you got home and dark when you left this morning. Yeah, dark when I left this morning as well. So I haven't actually had a chance to have a look around yet, which is really weird. Um, But as I was walking off the veranda this morning, I did something that I do nearly every year, and that's pick a sprig of winter sweet because that's in flower at the moment. Uh, and the veranda light was enough to find that. <laughs> Although I could have smelt my way in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I still, and look, I say this every year, I still maintain it's one of the most exquisitely beautiful scents. Uh, it's one, one of the of great the, winter flowering plants. And one of the plainest f- plants in summer. Yeah, look, it's a very plain, ordinary plant, although I was taken to task about that once by an elderly lady friend of mine up in Myrtleford who'd heard me say that I thought that winter sweet was a bit boring in the summer. And she said, but it has lovely, glossy, bright green leaves. 
And so in a sense, I have to agree with her. Its foliage is quite glossy and it is a good bright green and it does go yellow before it sheds in the autumn, although mine's still got an awful lot of green foliage on it. So I'm assuming we haven't had excessively cold weather since I've been away. Well, there's been quite a lot of rain and consequently there's cloud cover and although it's cold, it's not that vicious cold. Yeah, well, Mm. that's the thing I'm looking forward to doing later today is actually walk around the garden and see how many of my frost tendery things are still sort of holding up because when I left um, uh, to go to Italy, uh, things like my tree dahlias were coming into flower, uh, my Mexican tree daisy was coming into flower, the Montanoa. My Montanoa is just, it's gone into seed pod Mm. and it is so beautiful. Well, I've only got one species because it seems to be the most hardy one, which is uh, Arboreus leucantha or something like that. Uh, I've tried the Bipinata fitter, I've tried the Hibiscafolias. They all die for me from Mm. frost, but this one manages to come through and it was in full bloom as I was leaving. Uh, But they're all things that are at risk from frost, so they'll get knocked down if I get really heavy frosts and I'll lose the, the benefit of their flowers for that lovely early to mid-winter period that they can be good at. Well, I walked around my garden and I counted more than 25 sage different salvias in flower. Mm. But when I look at them, I mean, I think my garden is basically just an outpost from Mexico. <laughs> well, that's where a lot of the good salvias come from, apart from anything else. And, of course, the, the tree dahlias and the tree daisies and all those things come from that sort of Central yeah. america part of the world as well. So there are a lot of great garden plants that are tough in our environment. Uh, they'll cope with our summers. Um, many of them are frost-hardy or will die down in the winter so that they're protected from the frost. Um, and... A lot of them are winter flowering, which is really useful. My garden at the moment just looks beautiful. It is just full of flower. Mm. Who says that you can't have a garden full of colour in winter? Oh, absolutely. Well, and... Uh, I think it was Meg Bentley said to me yesterday. No, no, it was one of my neighbours said to me yesterday, well, the only time your garden really looks bad is in February. Yeah, that really hot heat, Mm. middle of the Mm. summer thing when plants, even the ones that are supposed to be in flower, then look wane and miserable Mm. because it's Mm. just too hot and dry. Yeah, Yeah. and if it's really bad, even the plectranthus looks awful. I mean, not the plectranthus, the agapanthus. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Well, how many of us remember the year when our agapanthus all got burnt by the heat? Mm, They melted. Yeah, they did. They just Mm. went all soggy and disgusting. And you think, well, of all the plants in the world that you'd think would be completely immune to anything the climate could throw at it, Mm. I mean, they all came back. But the trouble with the evergreen agapanthus is it took a long time for them to look half reasonable again because mm. you they had did. all that awful stuff through them. They just melted, mm. literally mm. melted. Stephen, do you have any winter sweet in your nursery at the moment? I'm sure I have, unless um, the, uh, unless um, the darling nursery sitters have sold it all on me whilst I've been away. Uh, <laughs> but I normally have plenty of winter sweet for sale because I think it's a great shrub. Mm. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's go to uh, Frank in Noble Park. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, my friend Amy Bishop. Uh, How are you? Oh, with the grace of God, goes I. Yeah. <laughs> also, spending a true story. Also, the great <laughs> Mr. Ryan, Galilus, as ever, you know, verbally explained, unbelievable, uh, not even saying beyond the British Encyclopedia. Hallelujah. I'm also so glad that Amy Bishop, you're in charge of the program and coordinator. He's a very, very brilliant man. But sad to say, he still haven't mastered himself when to speak and not to speak. But sad to say, sometimes he comes across like a verbal logic, you know, so to speak. With all respect, hallelujah. Also, we want to wish a match, you know, for a 90th birthday. And, uh, yes, uh, David has said she got fantastic courses, etc., etc. Coming straight to the crux of the matter. Now, I bought, going back 
it is basically recorded on Radio 3 CR. I bought 13 olive trees, you know, mm-hmm. God is my witness. I bought 13 olive trees at Cole Supermarket in Noble Park. I'm a local, by the way, in Noble Park. I've been in Noble Park 35 years. To make a long story short, because we are so, so busy, now, eventually, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I'm a humanitarian, uh, non-violence, and also uh, uh, pacifist. To make a long story short, eventually, just by chance, I asked my friends, I said, how are the olive trees going? Apparently, they told me, uh, of course, uh, uh, I kept one and I gave 12 out. They told me, uh, which absolutely mystifying. They said, Frank, they're all producing 12 olive trees, only 3, 6, 9, 12. So now, A.B. Bishop and Mr. Ryan, Bobology, etc., etc., um, uh, one question, that is one. And two, what I can't basically understand is, we have been in Australia 200 years, 50,000, 100,000 years, indigenous um, Aboriginal uh, conservation, etc., etc. And now, we have been here 200 years, we know the weather conditions, and basically, with all respect, A.B. Bishop, uh, what I can't basically understand, they are all the broadcasters, they come across... The weather is so bad. I mean, surely after 200 years, we've got to get used to the weather. One question regarding the olives. And the second question is, basically, regarding the conservation, regarding the olive, olive trees, what is the best thing that we can do regarding the olive trees? Now, uh, because I'm a hotelier, by the way, food, beverage, catering. So can I just interrupt there for a sec, Frank? Um, I'm not sure how... So you were saying you bought 13 olive trees, you Precisely, gave all yes. of them away to friends except for one. I, I, I kept uh, uh, one... For, so you kept one, and are they fruiting or are they not fruiting? Pardon me, sorry? Are your friends' olives fruiting or are they not fruiting? No. Because I actually missed the question. I'm, no, no, no. I'm being charging honest. God is my witness. They have produced... Uh, hang on, 2016... Uh, minus by eight. Uh, yes, in two zero five, I gave twelve. Uh, uh, Pam was there, and then I gave twelve to my very very close friend. Apparently, they are uh, they are producing in three six nine and twelve only three six nine and twelve fruits. Uh, is there something wrong with that? Or, how how uh, long have you had them? Since 2005, I think Precisely, Frank was saying. Yes. Since 2005, and they're not producing much fruit. So, uh, uh, any three, suggestions? Uh, three, 3, 6, 9, and 12. Yes. 3, 6, 9, and 12. Yep. yep. I find with my olives that some years they produce better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, it's almost it a every, seasonal thing. every yeah. second year they'll produce better than the first year. Anyone will always uh, interrupt you, don't worry. I've got about, I don't know. Eight, no, no, uh, eight or nine, even, and, even, and they even while you're speaking, Stephen will always interrupt you. But uh, uh, AP, you just interrupted uh, me. <laughs> can you speak without uh, Mr. Stephen Ryan interrupting? If you don't mind. Uh, okay, so I'm just trying to get the actual question right. So it's, I guess all your friends have got different soil types. So maybe some some people have got better soil for for the olives than others. 
Um, I think um, maybe that, that's the issue. I know I've got an olive tree which has been in for years and years and years. We're in really rocky clay and haven't seen one olive. But, I mean, of course, olives are extremely hardy plants, aren't they? I mean, they usually, you know, survive on the smell of an oil. Precisely. Yeah, Precisely. so what sort yeah. of soil do you have in your garden, Frank? We have survived for 5,000 years, believe me. That's right, yeah. So it's it's surprising. So I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I guess you could just um, continue to um, add the fertiliser and, um, you know, liquid seaweed and... Um, cross yeah, your fingers. Cr- cross your fingers. Mm. And Mr Ryan won't put his two penneth in because you don't want me to. <laughs> and um, uh, Mr A.B. Bishop, what is the best fertiliser? I, I, I told you, no, the seaweed is always interruptive. So um, what is the best uh, uh, fertiliser, if, if you don't mind me asking? I would just go to a garage and I would buy... Um, some of the garages just sell cow poo and sheep poo, and I think that sort of organic stuff around your tree would be the best thing yeah, you could do. Yeah, anything uh, organic. A.B. Bishop, uh, I know you're a uh, very busy lady, but I also believe that Mr. Stephen Ryan should respect you and not interrupt you when you're speaking? Oh, I don't, I don't think Stephen ever interrupts me. All right, okay. Yeah. Um, all right, Frank, well, thank you very much for Hallelujah. your call this morning. God bless you all. Have, have a thank lovely Sunday. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, that is tricky about olives, isn't it? I mean, and it, it's the same with any fruit tree. I mean, people have heard me rabbiting on about my apricot tree for a while now, and finally um, I thought... Just we're just getting rid of it, and so Ray took it out last week. And um, oh, there's, sad. you know, it, it's kind of sad. But I was really over it, you know. Just you have been in seven years. If you're not going to give me some fruit by now, I'm sorry, but you got to go. Yeah. So um, is go- there is there some um, art in also pruning olive trees? There is a little bit of an art in pruning them, having just come back from Italy and seen them being pruned there. Mm. But I don't think that stops them flowering and fruiting necessarily. No. Um, and they don't need a lot of fertiliser or anything like that. I mean, they grow on the rocky yeah, hillsides of Italy. and when you think about Italy. it, they're a weed. They're yeah. a weed in parts of Australia. So, yeah. I mean, really, yeah. I mean... And if you think about it, you see big paddocks of olives mm. once you get over the divide into that much mm. tougher... And I'd like to just put in a little point here. Frank bought those olive trees at Colts. He doesn't know what cultivar he got. There are actually non-fruiting olive trees varieties oh, out there that okay. are specially grown to not fruit. Oh, uh, and, okay. of course, yep. you need to buy particular olive varieties that are going to do well in your particular environment. Mm. I mean, I planted a Kalamata olive in my garden at Macedon and it's never done well. It likes a much hotter, drier climate. Yep. So you need to buy the ones that suit your climate. Mm. Uh, mm. And there are a number of cultivars out there. And it actually just points out what I said before about going to specialist nurseries and people who know what they're doing. If you, uh, I know I had a client exactly. who wanted to grow some olive trees up on the top of Mount Macedon, which is a pretty silly thing to do, but I ran a specialist olive grower and he told me which varieties that, that my client should have if they're going to get olives at the top of misty old Mount Macedon mm. and he gave me three variety names which I can't remember off the top of my head uh, but he said these are the ones that should work for that client to go and buy them from Coles you are running the risk of and I'm not blaming Coles I mean it's it's you buying things from someone yeah, who's not a yeah. specialist person yeah. who knows what they're selling yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you want the best plants and you want the best information you go to the people who grow it yeah I Simple. mean especially if, especially I think when it comes um, to fruiting plants. Mm. I mean, because I, in the end, I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe I bought a, non, a non-fruiting apricot. Mm. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I mean, every year it was just an absolute mass of blooms and not one apricot. Yeah, so well, see, my peach bizarre. tree's under threat. Uh, I put in an Anzac peach about eight or ten years ago and I've probably had a handful of peaches off it 
in that time. And I've recently raised some seedlings of a blood peach uh, that somebody gave me the seed of that I think somebody else had got the seed from overseas years ago and they've been just growing it from seed. Uh, And I've got two little blood peaches growing from seed and they were fruiting well in Gisborne. I have a sense that maybe if my Anzac disappears... um, I've got the space then to put something else in, and, and I'll try one of these blood peaches. I mean, you can and, only go and on you so long. Don't actually have a lot of space in your garden. No, I don't. Something I can't will af- have to go. Yeah, I can't <laughs> afford to keep a tree, particularly if it's. Uh, I have to say, the Anzac peach has really boring flowers when it does flower. It's not actually a particularly pretty big pink peach flower. It's a rather scruffy little thing. Um, and the peaches, when I do get them, are nice. But who needs a great big tree in their garden that you get half a dozen pieces of fruit mm. off a year? I'd rather plant something ornamental mm. that isn't grown for its fruit. Um, than have a fruit tree that's not doing its thing. Mm. And, I mean, these days also there's so many dwarf varieties for mm. all fruiting trees, aren't there? You well, know, you, so yeah, almost you, everything. Got, yeah. Getting back to olives, um, it, was, it was amazing to see in Holland they use olives as um, um, container plants, in large container, container plants, and the olive trees were around about three metres high, and they deliberately... Uh, used a variety that wouldn't fruit mm. because the fruit would fall on the footpath around the around the walkways and and be people a hazard would slip to people. over. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, but the olive trees were grown because they just didn't need very much maintenance at all mm. in these large containers, mm. and there were there were miles, kilometres of these things in the in the, in the street. Yeah. Well, in, in lots of parts of Spain and Portugal now, uh, in the old olive groves where the trees have become really old and ancient and gnarly and very picturesque, they're digging Beautiful. them and mm. selling them to people in England and all over the place as garden plants. And you'll go out and you'll pay a uh, £1,000 for an old olive, mm-hmm. but they're pulling them out of these beautiful old orchards which are just slowly disappearing. Which and is sort of and sad. there's a lot of upset about that in Spain now, isn't mm. there? Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah and they're, they're going to America as well. Yeah. Oh, what are they doing with the space? Is it all about development? They'll, they'll be no. They'll probably be putting the space back to some other crop. Okay. Mm. So they'll be growing something else. It'll be goji berries or something. God knows. Um, but you know, it's there's too many olives being mm. grown in parts of Europe now. I got six goji berries this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you did. I hope well you didn't put on too much weight after eating all those six goji berries. <laughs> they were so small you could barely taste them. <laughs> now, now tell me about where you've got your plant because I've got one in a pot waiting to go out. So. Well, I've just I just dumped it into the veggie garden. Okay. And I've never looked after it. And anyway, I've cut it right back because it it was ten foot high. I had to cut it right down to get the goji berries. And um, I'm just going to see if it survives. See what happens. Yeah. And I'm not that fussed about. Uh, it, it's, it's not the, overly exciting, is it? Really? No, six goji berries. It's not. <laughs> I mean, six peaches is one thing, but six, six goji, goji yeah, berries. That is yeah, taking that, you that to is, another yeah, level. Yeah, and they be they were very little. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but were they tasty? They were too small to be tasty. Oh, too yeah. small to be. T- Imagine if you had dehydrated them and saved them for later. There'd be nothing left of them. <laughs> Somebody would have thought they were pepper. <laughs> oh, now we should go to another caller. Let's go to. Anne from Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning, uh, panel and listeners. Uh, I've got a couple of very important questions for you today. Sure. Um, I have two Queen Elizabeth roses. Now, I'll tell you a little story about them. Unfortunately, they were planted in the wrong position where they've both been... One's a climber, one isn't. It's an ordinary Queen Elizabeth rose. But uh, 
been in the wrong position for a couple of years now. They haven't had a very good start. So I have to have them dug up, <coughs> pardon me, and transplanted to another part of my garden. And I might add that in my garden I have mid-clay soils, beautiful soil, at Oak Park where I am. And I'd like some advice on uh, wh when should I dig them up and transplant them? Um, you, you could um, uh, do that now. Now? Yes. And whatever you do, whoever digs them up, make sure they've got a good sharp shovel to, to get good cuts on the roots. Right. How old are the plants? Okay. How old are the plants? Uh, they would be about, uh, oh, roughly probably about three. Three, okay. Well, cut them back well to about a quarter of their, their growth that they've got on them at the moment. And, and dig them, and you can place them in, in, in a new position and certainly water them in with uh, liquid seaweed. Water with liquid seaweed? Seaweed, in, in, the, in the water when you water them in. Right. Yes. Right, so I cut them back to about a quarter and I water them in with liquid seaweed. Yes. And oh, that's wonderful advice. Now my second question for you panel and for any other listeners out there who may be interested sometime, I want to get hold of a giant cypress tree. Now I know they're not readily available. I'd like to know where I could get one from a nursery or order one from to plant in very good, beautiful, sandy, loamy soil. When you say giant cypress tree, um, there are a lot of different giant cypress trees, uh, so we sort of need to be a bit more specific if we can. I want the, the huge ones, dear. They grow, I don't know how many metres, it would be um, probably just about as tall as they have. There yeah. is also a real problem with cypress at the moment. There's a um, cypress canker going around and a lot of them are dying, so you want to be very careful which one... If I were going to plant, being more general, a conifer of some sort uh, in the garden, uh, again, I would go to a specialist grower. Uh, I would actually ring them at Conifer Garden Nursery uh, up at Fernie Creek. Conifer Garden Nursery? Yep, at Fernie Creek. And have a talk to them up there. Uh, and explain how big you want this plant to grow. I've uh, even got the phone number. All right, Virginia, the phone number. So have you got a pen there? Yes. It's 9755-1793. And they are absolute specialists in yeah. conifers. And they'll be open today. They're a retail nursery, so they're open during the weekend. Uh, and they would be able to give you good advice on what plant you should be looking for uh, to grow. Because I have to say, if it's going to grow to the size of the house, I wouldn't say that's a giant conifer. Uh, a giant conifer is something like the American redwood, which grows to 300 feet tall. So that's a giant conifer, which, which I'm not recommending you plant, by the way. I've planted one. Uh, yes, uh, when I say it's probably 
about as tall as the house but not as wide as the house. Yeah, look, they would give you advice on which one would be ideal for your climate and for the conditions and for the size and so forth. You and they will also know which ones not to plant because of this conifer canker, this cypress canker that is going around at the moment because a lot of them are dying. Mm. So you mustn't buy one that is vulnerable to that. Right, and I want to plant it in Melbourne. So, yes. Yep, uh, they'd, know, they'd have all the information you need, my dear. Anyway, thank you for your wonderful program and your radiothon is next week, so I haven't forgotten that. Good, Good on you. And uh, also I'm very supportive of the 3CR. I'm getting the 3CR history book for $50, which is a wonderful offer. Ah, beautiful. And I'm supporting maths programs on 3CR with a small donation. Good, oh, thank good you. on you. Good on you. Thanks, Anne. Thank Thanks you. for the call. Okay, thank you very much. Bye God for now. everybody there. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, and let's go straight to Joan and Wonthaggy. Good morning, Joan. Good morning. How are you? Good. Ah, uh, that's good. I recently bought a Brahma herb from uh, an op shop, and it's a memory herb, or it was sold as a memory herb, and I'm... We tried it yesterday as per directions on the little thing that was in the, you know, little tag that was in the pot. And it's absolutely tasteless and very tough. Is that <laughs> is, is that the memory herb or not? I wondered whether the um, notice in it had been um, taken from somewhere else. Well, you would certainly remember it, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've never tried it, so I've got no idea uh, of what it should taste like. I mean, some of these plants that they use for medicinal purposes taste disgusting, and others don't have any taste at all, but they supposedly do the job they're there for. So uh, I guess it's it not is, like you're buying a, a herbal tea that should taste at least half reasonable. It is a, It is specifically for memory. Mm. It's a bacopa, I think. Mm, yeah. That's right. But yeah. I, And I don't think that it's an... It's an eating herb. I don't think you add it to your curries. I mean, given it's Indian. Oh, right. No, <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm not sure. On the, on the tag that you add it to, um, to um, salads and things like that. Um, well, most of these things, I have to say, too, if you are going to use them in something like a salad, then the leaves need to be young and, and small. Uh, this time of the year, I would have thought most of those plants would have leaves that are quite tough because uh, it's gone into winter. Um, so I would be using them in small doses in summer. Uh, but Pocopa has a smallish sort of nondescript a... leaf, mm. uh, and it's possibly the right plant, but I don't know what it's meant to taste like. How do you spell Pocopa? Pocopa B. Um, B O C O P A. No, B A C O P A. B A C O P A. A P O. Bacopa. Oh, okay. It's a, it's it's also known as Indian pennywort and things like that. It's um, it is a bacopa and and it does need a lot of in summer. It'll need you really need to keep the water up to it or it'll disappear oh, right. on you. It might be okay. worth googling it Joan just to make sure that you do actually have the right plant and then that you, you are eating something edible. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, it's always a risk. <laughs> <laughs> All right well thank you very much. Okay, have a good, good program. Thanks Joan. Bye for now. Bye. All right let's go straight to Olive and Frankston. Good morning Olive. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much and um, I'll agree what you say about the sellers. <laughs> um, I found North Lake, uh, uh, no, no, sorry, 
I'm going to be, uh, uh, Coolard um, Nursery, and um, they've absolutely got experts there, so it's really good. Yeah, Wonderful. it is a good thing to go to a nursery that has people who are trained. Oh, gosh, yes. Um, the other thing, too, and I'm sorry to hear about North Lakes uh, closing down. Mm. We used to go bush camping uh, up there at Blackwood. It's got to happen sometime, I guess. Every every good nursery uh, relies on a good nursery man, and when they're gone, or woman, uh, when they're gone, they're gone. And uh, I don't imagine my nursery will carry on after I'm gone, so uh, it's just the way it is. Yeah, we used to give, he used to give us gumboots and we used to travel <laughs> yeah. around. Yeah, yeah I remember all that. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Now, the question is that this morning is that two years ago we bought a Nelly Kelly orange passion fruit and a bit of a novice with passion fruit, so we planted it on the sunny side of the garden on the trellis. And then what happened was that it didn't have fruit the first year, but the second year it, it, we've got fruit on it, dark green and as big as a tennis ball. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't know what to do with them. Um, somebody said they they uh, they ripen in winter, and other people say no, it's got to be summer. Um, I, well, you certainly don't pick them till they're ripened. Of course, uh, and if it's course. one of the orange passion fruits, they need to be orange before you pick them. Yeah, of course. But they've been there, been sitting there for about three months now. With this great big size, and there's about twenty of them. So wow. So I don't know what to do with them. Um. Olive, I had the same situation. I've got a um, passion fruit in which um, finally managed to survive last year's frost and and survive through to this year and unfortunately I had to move it. But it had large uh, passion fruit on it. But I do know from last year when we had some passion fruit that formed at this time of year that they didn't ripen. So, Mm. I mean, you could leave them there and see if they do ripen. I don't think they will. Um, you know, it might be better to uh, snip them off and just let the you know plant put its energy into just maintaining itself maybe, over winter. Maybe do an experiment. Take a couple in and put them in a sunny window and see if they'll ripen inside. Oh, yes, I could do that. Yes, I could. Mm. Yeah, play with them and see what happens. But, I mean, you. Uh, I mean, definitely, um, you need to protect your passion fruit from from frost, and that's um, speaking from a few years of experience when I've had the plants dying. Yeah. So what I do now is just you know drape a bit of hessian or something over it when I know it's going to be a frosty night. And the other thing I think with passion fruit is it's really awful to buy them grafted. I really, oh. I think if you buy them grafted, you just end up with so much coming from underneath the graft. Yeah, That's true. That Interesting because I put in one that was grafted and a, and a seed variety, and the seed variety sat there and sulked for you know a good you know a couple of months, whereas the grafted variety took off like a shot. Yeah. But um, eventually, the seeded variety took over the other one and was mu- a much, much healthier healthy. plant. Yeah, it's often the case. Sometimes things are grafted for un- unnecessary reasons. Mm, mm. Uh, it goes with a lot of fruit trees, actually. I have to say, uh, a lot of fruit trees would be far better on their own roots. Mm. Uh, um, and some ornamental flowering fruit trees as well would be far better on their own roots than actually on an understock mm. uh, for lots of reasons. But the reason that they're grafted or budded is often that that fits into the nursery's program for the year far better than growing them on their own roots. So budding particularly, which is done in the summer, they can do that when they've got a downtime. Yes. Whereas if they were going to do cuttings of those, they'd do them as winter cuttings. So they'd be doing them when they're trying to lift their other fruit trees. Mm. So they're... In often growing things or budding things just because it's for the convenience of the nurseryman, not because it's better for the plant. You know, some grafted plants, yes, it's, a, it's the way to go, but not all grafted plants need to be grafted and some shouldn't be. Well, I don't, I don't think, I don't think a pa- grafted passion fruit is a good idea at mm. all because mm. you just so often get this banana thing coming from underneath that you just cannot then get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it happen in so many gardens and they're more expensive. Yeah, 
Yeah, so yeah. you pay more for something that's going to be more of a problem. problem. Yeah. Mm. So, Olive, I'd be very interested to hear if you do leave your passion fruit on, if they ripen up. So, you know, mm. ring back in a couple of months and let us Listen. know if they're still green mm. or if they haven't. But they, they probably ripen. won't, if there's only half a dozen or so of them, they probably won't do any harm one way or the yeah, other. Yeah, just leaving them you know, there, yeah. yeah. And just to see what happens. And put a few on a windowsill. Mm. Yeah, and lastly, Stephen, um, but two years ago I came in to your, your area on a, on a Wednesday when you had a bus group and we sneaked in and we bought um, a, a cyclamen um, Afrikaans or something. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. And it's beautiful. It has been beautiful in the summer. It's absolutely full of green leaves now, but every winter, uh, summer it comes up and there's lots and lots of flowers. It's a wonderful plant, yes. It's uh, Cyclamen Africanum, which yes. looks very similar to Cyclamen hedrifolium. It's a very close relative. It's, it's, and it flowers in the late summer, early autumn, and it's just beautiful. It is. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you for your information, and and I'll be definitely um, putting my prescription in. Good. <laughs> Good on you, Ola. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye Thank for you. now. Great, and let's go straight to our friend Gwen Elliott. Good morning, Gwen. Good morning, everyone. It is a good morning. Out here now, the, you know, the, the, it's nice, it's pleasant, it's cool, but it's going to be a lovely day, I think, lovely winter day. Oh, good. I wasn't sure this morning when I, when I was driving in if it was going to cloud over. So what's it looking like out there? It's good. I mean, yep. I know from coming into the studio, you come in and then you haven't got windows. In <laughs> yeah, the that's right. You're buried. Outside, but no, no, don't be frightened to come out again. When the <laughs> oh, good. Look, I thought if people were thinking what will I do today and it's perhaps a little bit cool for them to, you know, really enjoy being in the garden, there's a book sale, a second-hand book sale down at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and the gardens are always a great place to visit. Um, if there is a shower, you can have a ride on the Garden Explorer vehicle. But um, in the auditorium there, um, it's air-conditioned, it's a big room, and it's just chock-a-block with second-hand books, and many of them are 50 cents and a dollar. So um, you can go home with plenty of reading to keep you snuggled up for the next month or two, or year or two, maybe. But um, it was open yesterday, and we sold lots and lots of books, but we've still got lots of books, and it'll be open again today and tomorrow between 10 and 4 at the auditorium at Cranbourne. You know, many people um, now, well, all the time, sort of downsized or have finished reading a particular book or have changed their interest uh, maybe from a specialist area. I know Grandma Beer, we've got a big, well, not a big section, but we've got a lot of books on roses. Uh, we've got all aspects of gardening and horticulture, including native plants, but not just native plants. Uh, there's a landscape section. There's birds, there's farming, there's natural history, all sorts of things. So if anyone's wanting to do something today, uh, the friends at Cranbourne don't have credit card facilities there, so you need to bring a little bit of cash with you. But I can assure you that for 10 or $20, you can have months and months of reading. So anyway, just thought I'd mention that that is on today and tomorrow between 10 and 4. Free entry, of course. Sounds and- wonderful, Gwen. And one of the sad things about life now is a lot of the second-hand bookshops have closed down. Yes. So it's yeah. wonderful to find somewhere where you can find some second-hand books. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of research now, um, particularly young people who've used computers since they were in primary school, um, they look up the information they want online, and that's great. It's up-to-date often. And, you know, you need to check it out sometimes. But there's nothing quite like the, the touch and feel of 
um, you know, looking at a book and flipping through the pages. And there's even a, a table there, sadly, I might say, where there's a whole lot of free publications. <laughs> Um, magazines and I think there's National Geographic and Australian Geo that people are just welcome to take because sadly, um, you know, there isn't a demand for those things now as much, and old old issues of things. But what, doctor still surgeries trouble. still need them, don't they, Gwen? <laughs> doctor surgeries still need them, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they might, they might for sure. Well, if any doctor's listening and wants to get some <laughs> magazines for the surgery... That's all free and we're happy for them to be used rather than just going to paper recycling. Fantastic. Okay, have fun whatever you do today. Good on you, Gwen. Thanks a lot for calling in. Okay. Okay, take care. Bye. So I suppose they're books that uh, people have donated, are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. fantastic. And, and I think it's a, it's a great asset if you can go in and, and... Look, I agree with Gwen. I love a book. Um, and yes, Googling things is fine, but you often find yourself led off in all sorts of directions that don't actually get the information that you want. And in fact, some of the information I'm looking for sometimes is so specific that you just can't find yeah. it on the internet yeah. anyway. Um, so, you know, I'll go, go in and Google a plant and it'll come up as a, as a stub on Wikipedia or something with nothing there to actually mm. take you any further. And, uh, and Gwen's right. The, the, Internet is fantastic for some of the finding out up to date things. I mean, I often go in and check names against what is accepted commonly or what is accepted at the moment as the appropriate and proper name for a plant. But of course, even that is contentious. I mean, mm. I know Roger does not like the idea that Callistamine is being sunk into Melaleuca. <laughs> yeah. I'm finding it hard it's, to get my head it, around well, it. Well, <laughs> I think everyone is. It's a bit mm. tricky, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I can sort of understand the reasoning. I can, and, you know, once they do the gene and chromosome counts and all that sort of stuff and they can see that plants are perhaps more closely related than they once thought, then we've got to start getting used to a new name change. And, you know, and I mean, I don't know how long it'll take the nursery industry to sink callistamine into Melaleuca. I have noticed... Uh, in Probably as long as it takes for it to go back to being callistamine. <laughs> yeah, well, well, who knows? Uh, I mean, I have, labels. Ha, has anybody noticed that Mycelia has virtually disappeared now? People are starting to call them magnolias. Magnolias, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, which has taken less time than I thought it was going to, possibly due to the fact that magnolia is a well-known genus and Mycelia wasn't as well-known. Mm. Um, but it does, see, it does smack of... Of, um, uh, of taxonomic sort of hypocrisy that we're quite prepared to sink Callistamine into Melaleuca and yet we fought like mad to stop acacia being taken away from us by the South, South Africans, Africans yeah. because they had the name first for their acacias and ours have been found not to be related to the South African ones. So by the laws of, of nomenclature... They, the, should have hold, they should have had them. Yep. The South African acacia should have been kept as acacia. All of our acacia should have been taken out and put into a new genus. And mm-hmm. I know Gwen's told me what that genus would have been, but I've forgotten. Uh, but it does seem hypocrisy that we're prepared to change whole genera around uh, within our own flora, and yet we w- we didn't let a third world country have what they should have had, which was the fact the name acacia. Mm. And I know that they're still um, rankling over it because every so often I get a magazine from the Cape Town Botanic Gardens because uh, I'm a life member of the of the institute there. And um, and they still sort of occasionally bring up this this topic about how they were gazumped by the Australian taxonomists. So do they call their acacias acacias? Or no. Well, no, officially they're not, they're not allowed to anymore right. because we got to keep the name only because we had more, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Sense, no. You know, when you're talking about the laws of priority, uh, the South African acacias should have kept the name. And, I mean, we could still call our acacias wattles. 
Yes, don't, exactly. We don't need to change the common name, uh, but they should have all been changed to a different genus because so they're they have, not related. the morphology of the flower is actually different. Is oh, it? Is yes. That, right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, there are substantial differences. And, of course, the word acacia itself talks about thorns. The South African acacias have Very thorns. Very thorny. Australian yeah. acacias don't have thorns. They have some that have prickly leaves, mm. but they don't have thorns. Yeah. So the name actually doesn't really apply to our plants particularly well anyway. Um, and, of course, the, one of the arguments was the, the iconicness of the Australian acacia. But what is more iconic than an, an African acacia with a giraffe um, grazing yeah, on it? Absolutely. I mean, we all know of it. Um, and I think that's just as iconic. And mm. so I must admit I was horrified that our botanists got away with that one. Um, and it did it, strike me as funny when they were quite happy to lump Callistamin in. Yeah, and that mm. happened here, didn't it? That big botany session. I can't remember in, where the actual. I think it was in uh, Melbourne. Yeah, because it happens every five years. They have mm. this big uh, international um, taxonomic sort of conference where they discuss the rules and regulations and plant name changes and all the sorts of things that go on. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, all these boffins all get together and discuss what's got to be done or whatever. And Apparently, the Australian taxonomists went in force and they were determined to um, mm. uh, to save the name acacia for our plants. And I understand where they were going in some senses. I mean, there's a lot of work in changing a whole big genus of some 300 species and, you know, changing... Tell, tell well, Roger would, you, would agree when it comes to calistamine. Yeah, and, and which, yes, Roger would agree with when it comes to calistamine. Um, and, of course, that is the big thing that happens then with books. As soon as you have a big name change like that, then all some the of the books, of yeah, they become yeah. dated because yeah. the names have all changed and it and can be hard to keep up. I, yeah. I went to the Geelong Botanic Gardens recently and I saw this plant there that I thought was absolutely gorgeous and they told me it was a justicia, it was red, and I thought, mm. I don't know any red justicias. And on the way back down to Melbourne, I stopped in at the nursery at Lara. Oh, yes, at Lyles. Yep. At Lyles. And he said, oh, yes, I know that I know that plant. In fact, I gave it to them. It's over there. So I went over and I had a look and it was called Thursacanthus, I think. <laughs> and I, T-H, mm. T-H-Y-R. And I looked everywhere for it on the internet and I couldn't find it. And I mentioned it on this program ah, yes. about oh, a month ago, six weeks ago. And then Meg Bentley and I desperately tried to sort out what it was and I rang Lyle's nursery thinking we can't find it in the books, we can't find it on the internet and it had been changed from its previous name which was Odontonema and by now it had been changed back. To Odontonema. So, uh, to Odontonema. Very confusing. So, uh, yeah. how, how are we meant to keep up? And, yeah. and you can understand the hesitancy of the general public on taking on new names and things if we're struggling as professional horticulturalists yeah, to keep up. Yeah. And, I mean, I love to know if something has been changed. I mean, I like to try and keep up to date with name changes and things. Uh, but it can be really difficult to keep up. And, of course, you do get rankled if it then gets changed back again. But the New Zealanders are struggling with a huge name change at the moment. They're Hebe's. Yes, that's have right. all been lumped back into Veronica, mm. where they started out fifty mm, or eighty started, years yeah, ago, yeah. Um, and the only difference apparently uh, between the New Zealand Hebes and the Old World Veronicas is that the Hebes are woody and the Old World Veronicas are uh, herbaceous, uh, and that doesn't stand up as enough to keep them as separate genera. Right. So I was talking to a botanist in the Auckland Botanic Gardens last year, and I was <laughs> taking a tour over there, and I said to her, "What do you think?" And she said, "Well." Uh, 
sort of in, intellectually she can accept this. She understands what's going on, she said, but it's going to be so difficult to get people to accept it because mm. it's it's just such a huge genus of importance to New Zealand um, that to dump it all back into Veronica is going to be very difficult for anybody to, mm. to cope with. And that means all those people who wrote monographs on hebes, it's completely <laughs> out of date now. Um, so, yeah, so it's happening all over the world yeah. uh, and it's something that we've got and to accept. And it'll keep happening. Well, it will at the moment, really, AB, because the problem the is we can do this stuff. The, yep. You know, so when you can do that stuff, then you see all the changes. Hopefully in time, once the stuff's been done, yes, then be things it. will settle down again. Yeah. Mm. But at the moment it is in flux and it's, it's frightening. D- DNA, talk, let's talk, go backwards. Talking about changes, I, I, I guess listeners may be or may, may not be aware, but we have a, 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 an offer by Bayer to buy Monsanto for $85 billion in cash. Interesting one, what, isn't it? Like pocket money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So Bayer then would become a huge giant. Yes. If it took a... Because I thought Monsanto was big enough. Yes. Well, I said, let's get a crowd uh, funding campaign happening, buy yeah. them out and shut them down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'd ever raise <laughs> enough, yeah, AB. That's quite a lot. Oh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is AB Bishop and with me in the studio, Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm, Virginia Hayward and Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Um, if you'd like to ring in with a question... The number is 94190155. Now, I've just got a, um, a, another quick community announcement um, just to talk about the 3CR Radiothon, which is coming up. Um, it's actually going to be, it's not next weekend, it's on Sunday, the 22nd of June. Um, so you've got a bit of time to save run. the housekeeping or whatever. That's exactly <laughs> right. And we're on from 7.30 till 10 a.m. And it's, uh, I guess it's listeners' opportunity to help support um, this amazing community-owned and operated radio, which has been going for 40 years. And um, we've been sharing the news, views and music um, from a diversity of culture groups um, that make up Melbourne. And um, so, and the gardening show, you know, it's, it's one of the shows where if you um, are listening to the Radiothon, you not only get to make a donation, but you come away with her fantastic products. You know, there's lots of products that we'll have on offer, you know, all the usual gardening stuff as well as a whole lot of books. So, um, yeah, listen on the 26th and, um, yeah, help us out and um, commit a bit of money and um, get something amazing in return. Yeah, and, yeah, we put out a fair bit, I think. We give people good value uh, as, a, as a program. So it'd be nice to be supported. Yeah, and I mean, not not all of the other programs have got product to give away, you know, but their listeners do call in with donations and that's fantastic. But, you know, we're in a really good position where we're able to actually give something for the donation. So, yeah, I think it's um, a really good cause. Very unique. Absolutely. All right, we're going to go to Tony in Dandenong North. Good morning, Tony. Yeah, good morning. And, uh, yeah, you do give good advice and I'll try and listen every every Sunday. Lovely. I was at the station on Friday to hand in my donation and uh, anyway, I've got uh, about eight or ten different, very low-growing plants. They're, they call them steppables or walkables these days. Um, some are like grasses, and I've been testing them just to see how they go. Some are in, um, I've got in uh, planter boxes, and some are in the ground where I've got good soil. But I want to move them to the nature strip, and some are really, I mean, they're really booming and they're ready to move. Is it a good idea? Can I move them now, or do I have to wait till spring to try them? Depends a little bit on what they are, Tony, but most things will shift at this time of the year. Okay. Uh, and so I'd feel reasonably confident to be planting them out now. Yeah. Unless... They all claim that they're good in full sun and um, 
not great soil and mm. even coast, but I'm not near the beach anyway, so I don't have to worry about sandy soils or anything. But So it's worth giving trying a couple out in, in the lawn. Yeah. yeah we can, no one can grow lawn here, and where I'm living on my native strip, it's, it's huge, which is normally a problem, but we've got these native trees that were here when we moved in and the roots are all coming out of the ground and all the access points are on my native strips. So I've got, you know, uh, concrete and steel grills and it's very tough to, to mow. Yeah. So if I put these sort of very slow-growing walkables or steppables or whatever and um, less maintenance and no mowing. Make yeah, sure, exactly. Make sure you get rid of the grass around when you put them in. Beforehand, yep. Yeah, make sure there's a nice big gap so that yeah. they're not competing with the grass. What about uh, with the lysium and lobelias? Uh, Lobelias. Would that be okay to move? I, they would be, but I'd be surprised if they uh, if the Lobelias survive well on the nature strip. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, because they like a fair not, bit of water. They'd just be like a, a little ring around the tree. Yeah, they're, and they're more or less an annually plant that you'd replace regularly anyway. Oh, okay. They, oh, they sort that. of outgrow themselves after they're flowered like mad, and you're better to plant fresh ones. Whereas, oh, I see, I see. Okay, thanks. The alyssum probably will seed, and so that will be okay. Yeah, It'll seed that, for that's you. been spreading for mm. all over the front there. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. one of those plants that will cope with a bit more dry too. So, yeah, right. the, the alyssum will probably be fine. The lobelias, they'll be very short-lived. Uh, okay, thanks for, thanks for your help. Good on you, Tony. Okay, Thank bye-bye. you. Bye for now. Now, Graham, you brought a... Um, Funnily enough, a rose. Yes, strangely enough, a rose. Oh, well, well, actually, before you get to that, why do you call yourself Silky's Rose Farm? Well, we originally started um, uh, 30 years ago at our, our place in Kilmore and we kept silky fowls. Oh. And we, we um, kept the silky fowls because we believe that they were very good in the garden because they don't do a lot of destructive uh, digging and, and uh, they're not, you know, really mobile. And silky fowls originated from the bamboo jungles in China. So they're, they're, not, a, they're not a bird that... Because the bamboo gave them their shelter mm-hmm. and um, they were, because of the way they are, uh, with their silk, people probably have seen them at the, at the Melbourne show. Um, so we um, promoted silkies as part of our sustainable garden centre and that's why we gave it a name. And you kept it. And um, I've always believed that it's, it's a good idea to have a name that people re- remember. And um, um, we found that people have done that over the, over the years that we've been, you know, in business. Hmm. Yeah, that's Fantastic. how it's got its name. And do you still have chooks? Yeah, we still have chooks. We now have langshans that, of course, that are... I'm glad you're not calling yeah. it langshan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> complicated. Yes. Um, and we um, switched over to the langshan. They, they had their origins in China as well. And they've been developed in Australia by, by some really good um, poultry breeders. Incidentally, there was a, a show last weekend up in Sydney, a national show, and there was 5,500 fowls there. Goodness me. And um, poultry have become very popular in, in people, in, especially in rural areas. Mm. And uh, people, are, are, of course, realise the value of the egg. And, um, and, uh, and they've become very, very um, in fashion for people just um, saying, hey, I want to have my own eggs and not rely on um, Safeways. cage And cage also having bread. the company of the chooks, they're yeah. so funny. They're, yeah. You know, of course, they each have their own personalities. Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of silver wine dotes who are well past laying stage, but, mm. you know, they're just adorable. And we've got one um, 
uh, Isa Brown, and yeah, she's a regular layer. Unfortunately, mm. her sister was taken by a fox a few weeks ago, so that was a bit sad. But um, yeah, but I actually was reading that uh, the Isa Browns in um, in uh, I nearly said cultivating them in their breeding, they um, to get them to have a really high egg production, they actually bred out their um, foraging tendencies, which is mm. why they rely so much on people for their food. And mm. you know, our our little girl's scratchy. She um, she's a classic example. She just stands mm. at the gate waiting for food the whole time, whereas the mm. other two girls they're off yes. scratching and scuffling around, yeah, well, finding their own a bit. Yeah. Well, poultry have a lifespan, and and and, and most laying poultry that are in in cages have probably got an expectation of two years now and and you know the revolution starting now with with eggs and people are certainly becoming aware of that and you know the poultry that we eat that come from the supermarkets they're no older than 48 days of age that's shocking and and they're quite frankly they're forced fed Mm. and um that Will eventually, I hope, change because it's it's a it's an area that really needs to be worked on. And when I worked um, at, at a municipal level, and, and we used to do work or inspections in in ca- cage laying facilities, it was just atrocious. You've got to be kidding. Mm. Well, when really, we, when we were young, it, a chook was quite expensive to put on the table. Mm. Yeah, it was. Mm. It was a special it Sunday a special, dinner. Yes, exactly. Mm. Whereas mm. now it's the cheapest meat because mm. of the horrible way in which they're reared. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. It's interesting around here because we're the, we're based in Fitzroy for this studio, and you wander around the streets of Fitzroy and you hear cluck cluck cluck. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, the backyard have, poultry. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have them now. Well, in in, in fact, it's, there's no excuse for it actually for for table birds. Because we have – in New South Wales, we have some of the best poultry breeders in the world. And um, also – and that's come about because the climate is absolutely ideal for fowls. Mm. And we have a really good climate here in Victoria. But New South Wales, you can – you know, in the northern parts, in the warmer area, it's just great for free-range birds. Mm. And we have to get into that area. Mm. We really just mm. have to. And there's those fantastic um, chicken tractors now, mm. aren't there? You know, mm. which they're, they're mobile out in mm. the field. You can move them around. Mm. The chooks can go into them and lay and, you know, they um, stay there. They're overnight as well, and they shut down mechanically, and mm. the chickens are safe all night. So, yeah, there's Except no excuse. Around me, the foxes take the chickens in the middle of the day. Hmm. Yeah, which is a problem. Well, you know, there's myths with with keeping chickens, and we've got them um, in, in a decent sized pen at our place. We've got an, also a mobile pen, and they only really need to be out for an hour a day. They do. They'll sit around and, and dude around, but. If you have a large bird, he's got a, he's got a, a challenge to keep up that tucker and and the food, so he's productive at producing eggs because that's what he's. You he's mean she? With. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he or she? Yeah. Uh, so we we've gone over to Langshan Bantams because they're really good layers. They lay up at about two hundred and thirty eggs a year, and it's a medium sized egg. We get this phobia of the eggs have got to be big, and that's just waffle, and. Um, uh, if you've got a, a good um, a good sized egg and you feed your, your fowls plenty of green feed each day, like kale, like silver beet, and and um, give them ordinary grass, you get beautiful coloured eggs that are really um, nutri- nu- nu- nutritionist. Mm, you know? mm. Actually, nutritional. It's, yeah. Mm. Um, it's interesting what you were saying, Virginia, about the foxes because that, that is true. They're really cheeky and will ours got taken during the day as well. And um, as you know, I'm back at um, 
Gardening Australia as researcher and uh, uh, James Beatty worked on a story with Sophie Thompson and um, she headed out to this incredible organic apple farm and um, part of their whole um, organic system was keeping chickens to you know uh, get the insects and any you know pests and diseases that might be occurring but of course to protect the chickens they then have a few marima dogs uh-huh. and you know so it's just a whole lovely cycle and, and these gorgeous dogs just you know flopping around the place all day um, protecting these gorgeous chickens so mm. I mean if you can have there's a, dog. a place just near me which is free range chooks yeah. and they've, they've got, got the marimas yeah, yeah mm. nice, nice well um, I've got a, 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 a two, two friends that have been in sheep for years and they'll tell you the foxes will visit your place regularly every night and they have a, a, a system where they'll visit different places and the people that I've sold fowls to that, that get killed by foxes is, is amazing and I just say to them well you, you, the blasted foxes should have got you you, you shouldn't let, allow the foxes to get chooks. Yeah, well, I and have you... to say ours were, uh, we had let them out of the, mm. the, you know, normally they're in a totally enclosed area, which is a really large area. So mm. I should have just, you know, left settled them. and left them there. Mm. But, you know, I do let them out every now and again. And one of the girls took to um, going to the compost on, on her own. And, you know, it was only a couple of weeks later that, yeah, Foxy yep. Loxy came along. And they watch and they'll visit you every day. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I've got, I got a friend of mine who, who traps foxes um, because he has lamb problems and, um, you know, he set four traps around a dead lamb and, and, and the fox will get caught with three legs and the fox is chewing away at one leg to get away. And that's true. That's the truth. That's what happens with them. Mm. They are so hardy and so um, tough. Yeah. They don't seem to kill my rabbits. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that's, it's, that's a, bit, a, it's a bit it's sad really in a way, annoying, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, they'll go for the damn chickens and leave all the leave rabbits. Leave the rabbits. Yeah. 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 And I have got so many rabbits. Yeah. The chickens are easy. Yeah. 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 Yes. They don't run as fast as a bunny. <laughs> <laughs> so, Graham, that was a, a bit of a um, long, a long journey. Oh yeah, to we get didn't to get to, your get to rose. the plant. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rose I've got here now that's flowering is the rose called My Hero. It's a beautiful pink, mid pink, and it has a magnificent perfume. And the reason I brought it in is that. Um, it just simply is flowering, and, and we were talking about the you know the fact that roses and 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 other plants are still flowering this time of the year, and it's a sort of variety that will flower through the winter. And there are a number of other roses that will flower as well. This one's been under a bit of a veranda area, and um, and it's just interesting that that's the way breeding has been going, which is really good. Mm, yeah, mm. it's it's quite incredible actually. Yeah. So mm. I mean, tell me this time of year, people mm. starting to. Um, prepare holes and whatnot for bare-rooted roses. Yes. Yep. Yes. So, and, yeah. and what's what sort of kind of preparation are we looking at? Well, dig a good size hole. Yep. Um, and whatever you do, incorporate some compost in the hole when you plant the rose, mm-hmm. and um, mound it up. Give it some some drainage, and uh, then make sure that you water the rose in with uh, a mixture of liquid seaweed and water. And it's always wise to do that at least once a month. And that'll build up the disease resistance in the rose because that seaweed goes, of course, into the sap and into the into the leaves themselves. And seaweed will give you another five degrees extra frost tolerance and also five degrees extra heat tolerance simply because it makes the skin on the leaf thicker. Mm-hmm. That's what research has shown. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, what about people getting plants mail order? Mm-hmm. What what sort of things should they do as soon as they get the plant? 
as soon as they get the plant, they can put it in a, the um, plant in, in, a, in a bucket of water with liquid seaweed in it and leave it in there for a couple of hours before they plant it. Um, the, the story with roses, of course, is that they are so productive, they need feed, and liquid mm-hmm. seaweed is a feed, in spite of what a lot of people will say, or feed or a tonic. I don't care what they call it, so long as it's a benefit to the plant. And um, I actually use liquid seaweed, uh, the organic liquid seaweed, to feed to the fowls too in, in their water. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Because it's got over 70 minerals in it. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing plant. That's a thought, putting it in the, in the water for the mm. chooks. Mm. Yep. And then in turn you get that benefit through the eggs. Mm. Never yeah. thought of that. Mm. Now, what I was interested in hearing more about is you mentioned that you um, your sustainable water practices on the property. Mm. Can mm. you tell us a bit more about that? Um, yep, it's simply uh, as, as simple as providing um, edging around the garden beds and picking up as much water, surface water, as possible. Um, Peter Andrews in his books um, uh, talks about um, storing water in Australian soils and the fact that dams are, are very inefficient and we need to learn to store water under the ground. Mm. And so um, our driveway, for instance, we channel all the water from the driveway in around some channeling of our, our vegetable bed. We use all our sullage water from our, our house and, and that sullage water goes in around the beds, but we make sure that the detergents that we use in our sullage water, the, wa- the washing detergents, are... are um, eco-friendly mm-hmm. and there's an awful lot of detergents and soaps on the market that are ac- quite frankly are rubbish mm. and they're really not good in our, in our environment mm. yeah. yeah so it's all about rather than having that runoff mm-hmm. just keeping everything there on the property yes yeah i mean yeah. and that's really important also to protect our waterways isn't it mm-hmm. because you know with increased fertilizer runoff mm. that goes in and creates algal blooms and all those sorts of things yes. so yeah they, they do say just keep as much water as you can on the property mm. Yeah. So um, what have you brought in today, Virginia? It's, my it's one of my favourite genera. <laughs> I've brought Sounds a bit sarcastic, Steve. <laughs> that was being sarcastic, funnily enough, uh, because every time I mention this genus, I generally get a real uh, earful from people because oh, they are frightened weedy? of the weedy species, oh, yes. yes. This is an oxalis. Yeah. Yay. And it's, <laughs> go oxalis. Yeah. It, it's beautiful, and there's a whole lot of them in flower at the moment, and they are, and they are lovely. And they are not particularly weedy. This one I have to protect. It's not that easy to grow. I can't grow it because it's frost tender. Yeah, I got. Although I got this from Jindavik. Yeah, yeah, and they should be For pretty cold pe- out there. Yeah, those people in Gippsland. There, there's there snow is, at Jindavik. Yes, exactly. Mate. There is a wonderful nursery, and in fact, the Jindavik nursery person's garden was on Garden Australia last week. It is a great nursery. Mm. Fabulous yeah. nursery, mm. and that's where this came from. It's Oxalis pedunculares. But I've also got versicolor in flower. I've got herta salmon. There's some really beautiful oxaluses that are available. I know Maldon Market will have quite a few today because Greg will be there, and he loves his oxalis. But now, um, I'm intrigued by the you know there's long stems which the um, flower heads on top of, and, and some of the flower heads are missing. So who's been in your garden eating um, them? My car. Oh, your car! <laughs> it fell over in the car. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Yes, uh, and of course, being an oxalis, and we're in a false lighting area, they're not properly open, but they'll open if I take it back outside where it wants to be. But um, I think I think they're as 
You agree, mm. don't you, Stephen? Oh, They're a lovely plant. Yeah, well, I've got a whole rock garden that's um, basically, well, it's got other things in it, but it's basically where I keep all my uh, South African oxaliluses, mm. and I actually call it my oxalarium. Um, <laughs> And well, there actually, you are, yeah, Oxarellium. And, yeah, and I've actually had a hybrid one come up in the garden, um, nice. uh, which is stunningly beautiful. Uh, and I think it's a hybrid between Oxalis flavour and Oxalis um, pentaphylla. And it has incredibly good-sized mauve flowers that sit on the ground with a sort of an Elizabethan ruff of fine finger-like lobes that come out from the side of it. Oh, it and so it's wonderful. flat to the ground. Mm. Um, the flowers, you know, it's only the depth of the flower above the ground. Uh, and it's the most beautiful little thing. Mm. Um, and it's definitely not something I planted and it's definitely within the range of the two other species to have cross-pollinated. Uh, so I, I'm quite confident I've got my own Oxalis hybrid. Um, and uh, I think they're a great genus. So I, and I know, look, there's weedy ones, but the problem with Oxalis is that we know it by its botanical name. If we didn't know it by its botanical name, if everybody called it Soursob and didn't know it was called Oxalis, then the ornamental ones wouldn't have the stigma of being, you know, lumped with the weedy ones. And, um, uh, and there's plenty of plants we grow in our gardens that have got weedy relatives. I mean, you just think about all those euphorbias that we grow and enjoy, mm. and yet we pull out petty spurge out mm. of the garden all mm. the time, which is yet another euphorbia. euphorbia. And so it's a, it's a matter of, you know... A little bit of knowledge can sometimes be dangerous, yeah. so we don't look at a whole group. I have we... noticed in some of the in one of the big wholesale nurseries that they had oxalis for sale, and nowhere on the label was the word oxalis. Mentioned. Yeah, I've seen that myself. I've seen a lot of it being sold as four leaf, lucky four leaf clover, <laughs> <laughs> uh, without the use of the term oxalis anywhere. Mm. Uh, in fact, I remember um, driving home from here one morning. And somebody had rung Jane Edmondson on uh, AW about this little plant that she bought as Lucky Clover with orange flowers. And I'm driving along going, I know what that is, I know what that is. <laughs> it's that silly oxalis that people are selling without calling it oxalis. And, of course, Jane hadn't come across the plant, so she was struggling to try and work out what this woman was talking about. And she was saying it's got really pretty orange flowers. It's in flower now, and it was in the sort of autumn, early winter. And I'm driving along thinking, if I only had a mobile phone on me at the moment, I could ring in and tell Jane what it actually is. It's actually an oxalis. Uh, um, and, yeah, I do object to that sort of thing. I, but I can understand why it happens. I had, I think, exactly the same species of oxalis for sale in my nursery, and I had a plant of it sitting up on the bulb bench near my office that the label had disappeared out of, and this woman came in and it was in full flower, and she picked this thing up and she was so excited. She said, this is the most beautiful little plant. It's gorgeous. It's lovely. I've got to have it. Uh, can you tell me a bit about it? And I said, oh, it's an oxalis, and she promptly put it straight back on the bench again. And so then I took it on as a challenge. And I spent the next 15 or 20 minutes explaining to her that some are weedy, some are not weedy, uh, and you can't sort of, you know, coat the whole genus with, with the same brush and all that sort of stuff. So I spent 15, 20 minutes talking to this woman about the oxalis, and she still walked out and didn't spend the $6.50. And I thought, I just wasted half an hour of my life <laughs> trying to convince somebody to spend $6.50. You know, and so I've learned my lesson now. If people are not really that interested or, they, or they're frightened of something, I say, all right, well, that's your attitude. I grow them. I love them. If you don't want it, that's fine. Somebody else will buy it. Mm. But I'm not going to try and, you know... Um, convert people if, they, if they've got this real thing about a group. But and do you know how many species there are? In Worldwide, there's something like 800 species oh, of oxalis. And how many are weedy? 
about Probably half two. a dozen. Oh, yeah. uh, and some of them are exceedingly difficult to grow. Some of the South American high Andean ones that grow as little rosetti things up in the high Andes. Um, I've managed to lose every South American high Andean species of oxalis that's ever come my way. Uh, I've managed to kill every single one of them because they're so hard to keep. Well, that one from up the snowy is not exactly easy to... No, it can, it can fade out very easily. And that was actually the only time I had a really interesting... Uh, set to with the weed authorities was over oxalis because I was at a conference some years ago where they were telling people in the media what we could or couldn't say about plants that were of a weedy nature uh, and some boffin from New South Wales got up and said well we've done a great thing we've banned the genus oxalis <laughs> and I got up and 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 had to with my quiet dulcet tones, uh, forced my way in uh, because there was no question time included in this whole seminar. It was a bit big brotherish, actually, I have to say. And I was told to sit down and I said, well, I'm not going to until you let me have my say. Um, and eventually they did. And I said, well, it's great that New South Wales has banned the genus Oxalis. That means they've banned Oxalis uh, lactea, which is on the endangered species list and is a native of Mount Kosciuszko. <laughs> and there was complete and utter silence because they hadn't done the science on it. Mm. I mean, it was... They just banned it for expedience sake mm-hmm. instead of doing it species by species which is the way it should be done uh they've done the same with willows they've banned virtually the whole genus without doing it species by species uh and i believe i haven't gone into the effort to try and find out but, but i believe the legislation in new south wales eventually came out with, as banning all oxala species excluding native species which unfortunately means that they're legally not allowed to grow New Zealand yams in New South Wales, which is Oxalis tuberosa, because I didn't remember that one at the time to throw that one into the mix. Mm-hmm. So uh, in theory, you shouldn't be growing the edible yam one right. uh, in New South Wales yep. because yep. it's not a native species. It comes from South America. Yeah, lots well, of shades of grey. Mm. But, I, I mean, they're a bit like that at the Botanic Gardens. If something is weedy anywhere then the friends are not allowed to sell it and then nobody is allowed to grow plectranthus. And yet we've got nat- a lot of native plectranthus, mm. in- including things like nitidus, which are threatened. Yeah. Yes, it, it, and surely one of the things we are trying to do at Plants Trust... Is protect plants. ...is to get yep. people to grow things that are threatened. Mm. Surely it Absolutely. isn't, particularly if they're Australian and they're threatened. Yeah. And do- it does bring that whole point of being, you know, sort of uh, weedy one place and not in another uh, is interesting because there's a, a plant um, from South, uh, South Africa... Um, which is related to the um, Watsonias and Gladiolis and things, and now I'm having a mental block and can't remember the damn name of it. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, and they've never been able to find, well, until recently, they hadn't found it in the wild. It can go, Curtanthus, Curtanthus oh, yes. bicolor. Uh, they part. couldn't find it in the wild. It can be weedy here in Australia because, you know, it likes our Mediterranean style climate. Um, but it was so rare in South Africa, and we had lots of it out here, uh, that we could have actually been the only place it was still growing in the world. And isn't that better to have it growing here than nowhere? Mm. Um, this is exactly what happened with a possum in New Zealand. There was a, a particular possum living on an island, and it was a possum from South Australia who was very threatened, and they were about to just eradicate everyone on the island when somebody made the link. Yeah, that, that it's rare that it, in its native it's, habitat. It was very threatened in its native habitat. Yes. So did they take it back mm. to South Australia? Mm, they Rather, did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great idea. All right, well, we should go to Val in Carnegie. Good morning, Val. Hello, Pana. Thanks for waiting. Oh, that's okay. And I think I'm bang on what Stephen was talking about, weeds. Um, and that little, so I'm 
trying to get the names. I don't know whether there's this oxalis thing that Stephen was talking about, but it's a very soft, four-leaf thing that's it's almost like a ground cover in the garden. Is that an oxalis? Very possibly. I mean, without seeing the plant, it's hard to say. But if it's got a, a clover-shaped leaf with four leaflets... And very soft. And soft and fleshy, uh, has it flowered for you? Well, to be honest, I haven't seen the flowers. Yeah, because uh, uh, most of the weedy oxaluses are winter yellow. flowering and yellow or soft pink, mm. um, uh, the worst weedy ones anyway. So what do I do? Do I pull them out? Uh, you can't eradicate oxalis as a rule by pulling it out because every time you try and dig it out, it drops bulbs back into the ground again and, in fact, what you then do is spread it. Okay. So you've either got to smother it out by putting down an impervious layer over it that you keep there for ages okay. uh, and, and keep the light from getting in so that the plant can't produce foliage. Yeah. Um, or the fallback position is to use one of the um, weedicides, which, of course, we yeah. don't encourage, but, but you know, it's sometimes the only way that you can deal with some of those weeds. Is it a yeah. small area, Val, or a large yeah, area? Yeah, a small area because the other sort of, uh, on the other side of it is, well, big deal. So what if it's there? Well, that's the other thing. A lot of people worry about oxalis, but because well, it's I winter, don't. well, it's winter growing, yes. so it's not going to smother things that are summer growing. That's right. Uh, and it's low enough growing that it's not going to affect your roses or your no. or your shrubs and things no. around the garden. No. So maybe you live with it and throw a few leaves in your salad every so often because <laughs> it's actually oh, vaguely think. edible. Um, so you know. Sometimes it's better to live with something than to yes. try and spend a lot yes. of money, time and effort to eradicate yes. it. No, I, I, oh, I'm glad I put that in. Now, can I make one more suggestion for sure. those of us who are not, uh, you know, very old-fired? <laughs> when we talk about the different fertilizers and nitrogen and phosphorus, how about then adding that nitrogen, blood uh, or such and such as uh, blood and bone or cow manure or something, so that we actually have the, we actually know what it means, or we actually know where it's contained. I see. So you want to know uh, if we're talking about getting nitrogen into the ground? Yes. What particular fertilizers yes. are likely we know to do that? that? Nitrogen gives a lot of green and a lot mm. of you know leaf rather than you know, and potash is good for flowers and things like that. But it might be useful to uh, you know just for the in the general conversation to actually. Um, distinguish between the different right, things. Distinguish mm-hmm. or, ex- or have it in what I would call brackets, like you know, which is contained in you know. Blood yeah. And so, powder. so which yeah, which fertilizers that's have high right, amounts right. of whatever? I mean, whatever. because there's a whole range of listeners who are you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that that is a good point. I, th- I suppose as a general rule, um, you know, your your animal kind of fertilizers are, you know, higher in the macronutrients, so your, your mm. nitrogens, phosphorus, and, and yeah. potassium. And then, you know, when you get to rock dust, rock minerals, those kind of things, they're a bit more specific with the micronutrients. So, but that is a, that's a yeah, really a good point. point. Yeah. Okay. All right, I thanks for calling. I love your show, good. and I'll be waiting for the uh, telethon. Oh, Fantastic, good on you, Val. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, it looks like we have certainly struck a chord talking about weeds, so we're going to go to Sonia <laughs> in Broadmeadows. Good morning, Sonia. Yes, thank you. Uh, I missed the last speaker referring, I think, to oxalis. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, we did have so, a little yes. oxalis um, yes, talk then, yes. Yeah. Well, that was one of my, my quest, first questions. Um, I've just been invaded like the trippets, mm-hmm. and um, they're 
absolutely even in my pot plant. And yep. I don't know how they they um, uh, you know grow. They must grow from seed as well. Oxalis will self seed, and oxalis has explosive seed pods. Ah. And so, although the seed has a very short viability, it doesn't stay viable for very long. Um, the seed pods actually explode. So, if you've got oxalis growing in the garden, uh, it can leap into pots quite easily from seed, particularly the weedy ones. Uh, so that's probably how it's getting about. Um, and then the other trouble with them is that they're on a, a really small little white bulb, yeah, which makes little bulbils, mm. and they ju- and it can just spread as soon as you disturb the soil, it'll spread. Mm. Yes. So um, other than getting a hammer and hitting them on the head, what else can I do with them? Um, Well, the the last discussion we had was, in fact, sometimes you live with these things because that is an alternative. Uh, I have been known on this program to suggest the only way to get rid of oxalis is to put a for sale sign up out the front of your house (laughs) and move away from the oxalis. Uh, Except you're likely to move to another lot of oxalis. Yeah, well, you might well, and and maybe even a different species. Um, Keeping the foliage from growing is one technique, but you've got to keep at it all the time, either by covering them up with some sort of impervious layer uh, or chipping the tops off them all the time as they come through. It can take years to eradicate that way, but that is a way of dealing with it you if you don't... Pu- pulling the, the leaves and the stalk out. Yeah, yeah, but leave the bulbs alone. Don't try and dig them out uh-huh. of the ground right because on. all you do is spread it round when yep. you do that. Um, if you are going to use a chemical weedicide like glyphosate, uh, if you are prepared to do that, then you use that chemical when the plants are in full bloom. Yep. No, because the oxalis doesn't, it produces new bulbs every year, and so it expends the nutrients in the old bulbs as it comes up into flower. And if you can chemically treat the plant at that time, you have the biggest chance of killing it out. You won't kill it out in one attempt, but you'll get a good kill rate on it at that point. But yep. that's the, uh, the only way to deal with it if you're going to try and deal with it chemically. Otherwise... You know, just look around the garden and say, well, how much damage is it doing? Well, it's driving my neighbour, who's a very good uh, Greek gardener, berserk, who's gone visiting. (laughs) Yeah, I can well imagine. Um, uh, uh, So if I, uh, what we're doing, every time I see them, I just pull them out. But I've never seen a flower because I don't get it to that stage. Yeah. I let it flower and it's more weak and then pull it out. No, that that won't weaken it exactly. That's only if you're going to spray it out uh, is that you would wait till that point uh, for spraying. I think the best thing to do is to actually take off as much of, you know, pull the leaves off and then mulch it. The the ground is so wet at the moment that you can safely cover them. So what you want to do is deny them light because a plant cannot survive without light. Well, uh, I've got... I just had the garden sort of someone help me and I've got six inches of mulch on top and unfortunately I put a, 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 a underground watering thing and um, they don't mind at all. They just go through the six inches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oxalis will do that. Uh, I know they had a big oxalis problem in the Geelong Botanic Gardens way back in the late 60s. I'm old enough to remember that. Uh, and uh, that was well before they'd invented glyphosate and, and most of the you know chemical things that we can get these days. Yeah. Um, and they just kept hoeing the foliage. Mm. So they just had a sharp little hoe and the gardeners all went along were just hoeing the oxaluses. And the director at the time, who was a man called George Vaffiopoulos, who was a really incredibly good gardener, um, he said they eventually got the oxalis under control. It was just a matter of that constant Mm. shipping the foliage away uh, without allowing it 
any time to sort of feed the plant. Yeah. So they'd run through with the hose every time they could um, and uh, they eventually cleared it out or at least, yeah, I mean, it may have come back again in time, but yeah. uh, the garden was absolutely full of it at one stage. Right, mm. so the secret is don't disturb the soil no. and remove the green foliage that gives it food. Yes, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's the best way you can deal with it. And see it as a mid to long-term project. Yes, yes, yeah, it's no, not going to happen overnight. Actually, that's really, um, we can manage to do that. And good. that's really good. Thank you very, very much. That's a pleasure. Can I, can I, is it possible to ask a couple of others? Because the, the uh, session today raised some thoughts. We're, we're nearly out of time. Nearly out of time, but if you're really quick, Try us next week. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I, I, I shall ring you up uh, next week. I, I, it's just about I've got native bushes planted. Um, I had this front business done in my front garden to get rid of they're all uh, ones that tra- attract birds so they're all clistomers well, you know all those sorts of ones ring us Lovely. next week yeah I'll do that I'd right, love to hear about it I will do that and I shall look forward to that thank you very much for your session good on you thanks I really learned a lot okay bye 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 Yes, good old Oxalis. Um, <laughs> it always creates a bit of uh, comment when but, we talk about can it can I say one other thing about it it's got to be talked it. about though Greg is selling it. Stephen is selling it. Yep. They're selling it down to Jindavik. Now, these are three of my specialist growers who I have a huge respect for. I think there's something got to be something in it. If mm. all these, I mean, if, if these people are selling oxalis, there obviously are some good ones around. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and that, I mean, Tino um, Carnavale down in Tasmania, he, he was suggesting if you've got a really small patch, what you can do is dig the hole it up. So make sure you're digging underneath those roots and soak them and just basically completely soak them out. So, um, yeah, that, that way you get rid of them, get yeah. rid of them completely. Uh, now, that is um, all that we've got time for today. So thank you to Jenny for womaning the phones. Thanks, of course, to Virginia, Graham and Stephen for sharing your hort knowledge. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. Remember, in two weeks we will be having our Radiothon, so please tune in then. My name is A.B. Bishop and we'll be here again at the same time next week. So if you have any really good vegetable jokes, please do let us know. I like that expression, womaning the phones. That's very good. You better take that back, AB. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.